We're going to read from Matthew chapter 8 this morning. We're in a series that we've been calling Rediscovering Jesus. And we're looking at a number of, of passages in the Gospels where Jesus had conflict with people who had preconceived notions about who he was and finding that he didn't fit the boxes they set up for him. And at other times, we are looking at uh, clashes where people were surprised by Jesus. Even his own disciples were surprised by Jesus. And we see part of that going on in this passage today. So it's kind of a long one, but it's Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 34. Let me lead you through that right now. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have their holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Then he got into the boat and the disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we are going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large the demons begged Jesus, If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave the region. Let's pray for a moment, and then we'll dive into this. Lord God, continue to open our eyes to understand who Jesus is, and the authority that he has over life in general, and especially over the lives of those who trust him and follow him. We pray that you would give us wisdom to not only recognize Jesus, but to rest in his strength and in his power and, his, and in his authority on our behalf. Allow us to so, so thoroughly trust him that we're able to be at peace with ourselves, at peace with you, and at peace with others in this world. We need wisdom in knowing how to go about our lives. There are challenges that some in this conversation. Allow us to see the traps that are out there in this world and to be discerning and not to fall for either lies or misdirection or deceit, because that's all around us too. In short, allow us to be able to see with the eyes of Jesus through every scenario that is opened up before us this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a senior in high school, our boys' basketball coach from the previous season had resigned. So we had a new coach. He had previously coached the girls' team, and so all the players knew this coach, and he pretty much knew all the players. But he soon faced a challenge that he didn't see coming. 
By the way, he might be listening because he comes to our church, or at least did before he moved to Florida, and he often listens online. So, Coach, uh, this is in memory of you. Uh, because there was this new coach with a new approach, just about every boy in the school decided this was the year to try out for basketball, thinking that the patterns of the old didn't matter quite as much. And so there were 88 guys that showed up for tryouts. What would you do if you were the coach and you had 88 guys trying out for a team where you would ultimately have 13 players and maybe 12 players who make the junior varsity team? So he got together with the other assistant coach for a few minutes at the beginning of that first day, and then he said, all right, I have an announcement to make. Here's the announcement. There are 88 of you, and none of you are going to be cut over tryouts of the, over the first three days, if you make it. <laughs> he said, the other thing I want to tell you is, we're not going to shoot a basketball once during the first three days. And then he rolled out a series of drills that were all designed to uh, toughen us up and to see who was hungry enough to play basketball. One of the things that I remember is he put a basketball out on center court right in the middle and he had all the guys stand on the, on the lines outside the court and then he blew a whistle and what he wanted was for about 10 guys on either side to rush toward that ball and to dive on the floor and to see which guy could get the ball and hold on to it. And everybody else, of course, would come up empty. So you got 20 guys that are wrestling for this one ball, their elbows thrown and, and he was measuring toughness. And we did this several times on those three days, among with other running drills. And I noticed after the first day, there were several guys that didn't come back for the second day of tryouts. And after the second day, there were several more that didn't come back for the third day of tryouts. And then after the third day of tryouts, his job of cutting down the pack was a whole lot easier. So what did we learn through all that? Over those three days, the coach was really looking for one thing. He wanted to know which players had truly counted the cost and were willing to work harder than anyone else. Hold on to that phrase, counting the cost, because it comes up in this dialogue that Jesus has with a would-be disciple who promises to follow him forever. So I tell you that story this morning because there are moments in our lives when we are challenged to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. Part three of our Rediscovering Jesus series takes us to a moment like this in the ministry of Jesus. He was coming off a mountaintop experience of teaching the Sermon on the Mount to a large group of followers. And Jesus wanted to know which of these people were truly willing to follow him to the end and which ones were simply caught up in the high of that mountaintop experience. Here we find another occasion where the preconceived notions people have for Jesus did not match his mission, or his identity. In this series, we are looking at scenarios where conflict revealed that some of the people of Jesus' day were trying to fit him into religious boxes that they had created. This is where we find the dangerous thing about this series too. For we may find that we have tried to recreate Jesus and fit him into our boxes as well. And the question we keep asking is, what will we do if we find that that is true and that we have created our own boxes to try and reshape Jesus according to our imagination. Welcome to North River today. I'm glad that you're here. Can you believe it's October already? First, let me welcome all of those who are here in the room with me in Pembroke, in our worship center. And I also want to welcome those of you who are online and participating with us from your homes and from wherever you find ourselves today. Perhaps you're traveling and so you're tuning in or, or you were, had a conflict this morning and you're tuning in later in the day. We're glad that you are here. We all have one thing in common. We want to understand who Jesus was based on the earliest records about his life. 
We find those records in the books that are known as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. They are the oldest records that we have of the identity of Jesus. Whether you are just getting started or you, you have been a part of this church experience for decades, we are all learning more and more about Jesus week by week and year by year. If you're new to North River and you've newly found us online or if you simply have questions, I hope that you will take the time to connect with us. You can go to northriverchurch.org on the website and scroll down to plan a visit. And under that plan a visit link, there's a connection card that you can fill out. And it'll let us know who you are and it'll begin the conversation. Or you can simply go to the, the welcome desk and fill out a card there. They would love to help you. Or you can go old school and send me an email, paul at northriverchurch.org. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your questions. The question we're dealing with this morning is this. What happens when someone in the crowd says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you may go? Now, you would normally think, and I would normally think, this is what Jesus is waiting for. Someone calls out from the crowd, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you wherever you go. Wouldn't Jesus just welcome them with open arms? And yet, his response is a bit surprising. Here's the big idea that I'm trying to get across this morning. Everyone who follows Jesus should expect to be challenged and tested. Challenged and tested. Let's look at the way that Jesus does this. First, Jesus will help us count the cost. Verse 18 says, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, this was a high water mark in the ministry years of Jesus. Matthew chapters 5 through 7 contain what has been called the greatest sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was traveling from that mountainside to Capernaum, the largest city on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, which Jesus used as his home base for three years. Jesus had called his first disciples, all fishermen, from the shores of Capernaum. Remember that scene? He said to them, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men and women. And it says that they left their nets, their businesses, and in some cases even their fathers who were their business partners, and they followed Jesus. We don't see them fishing again for years. Along the way to Capernaum, another, uh, a, a series of events happened, a number of events happened. He healed a man who had leprosy. He commended the great faith of a Roman centurion as the, and he healed this man's paralyzed servant. And then he went to Peter's mother-in-law's home and he healed Peter's mother-in-law who had come down with a fever. And then people started sending their sick and diseased relatives and friends all through the night. There was an all-night healing session for many people. And then we find this crossing of the lake happens. Notice the connection between the crowd and the crossing. There was still a large crowd of people who were following Jesus every move in the aftermath of the Sermon on the Mount and all these events that had happened. It's probably especially that all-night healing session that he had done. Seeing the crowd, Jesus ordered his disciples to move to the other side of the lake. Does that surprise you? Jesus moves to separate himself from the crowd rather than to draw a bigger and bigger crowd. He seems to thin the crowd when it fits his purpose. There are often times when Jesus didn't trust the largeness of the crowds. The crowds wanted a show. The crowds wanted more miracles. The crowds wanted to be entertained. The crowds wanted Jesus to do what they wanted him to do at their call. More miracles. And the crowds were also often 
fickle. It is at this point that Matthew tells us about a teacher of the law who makes his way to Jesus and calls out to Jesus with this great cry, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And notice what Jesus does at this point. He doesn't immediately put his arms around this guy and embrace him, and he doesn't reject him either. But he helps him count the cost in regard to what he is promising to do. In a sense, he's saying, do you understand the fullness of what it means to really follow me wherever I will go? Jesus already knew that he was on his way to Jerusalem eventually. He was on his way to the cross. He was on his way to fulfill his mission, which included the resurrection. But before the resurrection could come, he had to die. And he knew he had come for this purpose. So he says to the man, Foxes have their holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. It is a big deal that this early on, an established religious leader, with all the training that went into being a teacher of the law, it meant that he was an Old Testament expert, that he would follow Jesus. Remember, Jesus didn't come from any of the fancy rabbinic schools of that day. He was self-taught and he was taught by the Holy Spirit. There are many reasons why some people initially want to follow or identify with Jesus. Uh, think of this. So those, those of you who are boomers may remember a song that climbed the charts in 1973. It was put out by a group called the Doobie Brothers, and it was called Jesus is Just All Right With Me. Do you remember that one? Uh, some of the lyrics of the chorus go, Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. Oh, yeah. Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. All right, can you do this part with me? The doo 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 doots come right after that. You remember the term? Remember the chorus? Doo 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 doo. Yeah, we are getting old, aren't we? Now, let me tell you about this song for a minute because it relates to what we're talking about. Earlier versions of this particular song didn't get but much notice, but it was originally written in 1966 by Arthur Reed Reynolds during the Jesus Movement. And then it was covered by a band that was well-known called The Birds. And then the Doobie Brothers recorded it again in 1973. When they asked one of the members of the Doobie Brothers, why did you put this song on this particular album? The truth is they were in the midst of recording and they were one song short and one of the guys remembered hearing this song and he liked it. And so the interviewer was asking, well, was there a religious reason that you put the song on the album? And they said, no. We weren't particularly drawn toward Jesus or repelled away from Jesus. We just liked the song. All right, a contemporary theologian read that story. His name is Tom Rush, and he's actually an evangelist. And he noted that this fits so well because there are many people today who have what he calls a Doobie Brothers theology of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is just all right with me. We don't have to think a whole lot about who Jesus really was or what Jesus really did or what he expects, but, you know, he's just all right with me. He fits in with my life. And he says the problem with a Doobie Brothers theology is we escape asking the harder question, which is, am I all right with Jesus? Am I all set with Jesus? Have I really encountered Jesus according to who he is and what he came to do. What's fascinating is this teacher of the law seems to disappear after Jesus responds to his comment 
with that statement about foxes have no holes and birds, uh, foxes have their holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We wonder if he ever comes back and if he's a part of the entourage later on, or if he had a shallow commitment, even though it was boldly stated that day. Following Jesus for the disciples would mean giving up everything. Following Jesus in the pathway that he chose meant giving up everything. Home, recognition, reputation. Jesus was helping him count the cost. And he wants you and me to count the cost too. He's not looking for fans. He's not looking for Doobie Brothers theology. He's looking for people who will really follow him to the end and follow in his pathway. So, everyone who follows Jesus should expect to be challenged and tested. Now, look what happens immediately after that in this same passage. Jesus will give you a sense of urgency. That's the second discovery. Verse 21 says, Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. So he's heard this call to follow him. He says, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This is one of the most misunderstood and puzzled at comments in the entire ministry of Jesus. Biblical scholars unpack the meaning of this warning from Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus lacked compassion for those who mourn the loss of a loved one. Remember, he just taught in the Sermon on the Mount that we will mourn with those who mourn. And we are blessed when we mourn. This would-be disciple's request actually means something different. Let me wait until my father dies, and then I'll bury him, and then when I'm free from all obligations then I'll follow you, Jesus. In other words, when the timing is right in my life, when all other complications are removed, then I'll follow you. Jesus' response looks for a sense of urgency from his followers. When you think of it from the standpoint of what Jesus understood at that moment, he knew that all of history had pointed to the coming of the Messiah, and now that moment had arrived. This sense of urgency colored every aspect of his ministry. When Jesus calls then, nothing should get in the way of our commitment to him. Why does Jesus awaken our sense of urgency? Well, he himself had given up so much for us. He'd given up his home in heaven. He'd given up recognition fully as the son of God throughout the universe. And he'd humbled himself. And he was on the pathway of humbling himself that would lead all the way to the cross. Curious if any of you have watched any of the YouTube clips that feature evangelist Ray Comfort. He, I like Ray Comfort. He records a number of man-on-the-street interviews with people about their beliefs. And there's this profound sense of urgency from his tone that rises when he talks with people who don't believe in God or Jesus or who reject the Bible. He speaks tenderly of his concern that people may die without fully trusting Jesus. And he takes seriously their need to repent of their sins and turn toward Jesus. He often says things like this in these interviews, I've only just met you and I've already come to love you. And I would hate to see you die and face judgment with the full weight of sin still on your shoulders. That's that sense of urgency that Jesus gives, that we're not fooling around with Christian faith, following Jesus in the midst of a, a, a world that has either a Doobie Brothers theology or that rejects Jesus, puts us in a very narrow sliver of people who are trying to follow him completely and to draw others to the words of life rather than just walking through this life, kind of pacifying uh, our thoughts about God or, or our destiny, but 
It's only as we embrace Jesus as the Savior that it's applied to our lives. Again, everyone who follows Jesus should expect to be challenged and tested. And sometimes those challenges and tests tests come from Jesus himself. So we've seen that Jesus will help us to count the cost. He will often give us a sense of urgency that grows the more that we understand that life is short and there are some sad outcomes. Here's the third discovery that comes immediately on the heels of that. Jesus tests us through storms. The pace with which Matthew writes these words is fascinating because he records these scenes one right after the other as if they're all tied as one day or one event. Verse 24 then says, Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake. Remember, Jesus had sent them going across the lake to get away from the crowd. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men, his disciples, were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now, Jesus didn't create the storm. Storms happen naturally. But Jesus saw this storm as a test for their faith. He didn't create the storm but the reactions of the people were totally different. Some of the disciples were fishermen and experts at sailing these waters. They knew them well. They knew the patterns. They knew the trends. So we should not minimize the danger of this situation that those men who were used to sailing these waters were terrified and were convinced they were going to ground. Waves, uh, waves were coming over the boat. The Sea of Galilee was known for sudden squalls due to a number of factors. The elevation of the Sea of Galilee is several hundred feet below sea level, and then there are mountains that rise up on several sides of of this particular large lake, especially on the northwest side of the lake, which means that the wind patterns sweep down through the mountains and over, over the lake, and it can often create treacherous conditions. Notice that Jesus is the one who connects their fear with what he calls little faith. What did Jesus know in that morning that gave him great calm? He knew that God the Father would not allow his life to end without finishing his mission. He also knew that he had authority over all of creation as the Son of Man who made this world. The disciples marveled over the fact that the wind and the waves obeyed him. So this was a demonstration of his authority over his own creation. It makes sense of the assertion that Paul makes in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Not in the midst of creation or from creation, but over it all. That all things have been created for him and through him. I don't know how he did that. It's obvious that he used a process for doing that, but it says that Jesus was behind it all. It was for him and through him, and that in him all things hold together. Jesus continues to allow storms to test our faith today. Greg Laurie, the evangelist from California, writes that there are three kinds of storms that test our faith. There are perfecting storms, when God allows testing to make us strong in our faith. There are protecting storms, where Jesus delivered his disciples from the adulation of the crowds, even in the scene that we're looking at here. And there are correcting storms. We tend to bring these on ourselves where our own actions bring us into the corrections that God allows us to go through. 
Think of Jonah, for instance, when Jonah was running away from God and ultimately Jonah throws himself overboard because he knows he's running from God and he believes that the storm will end if he stops running. Look, here's the big idea that's running through all of these scenes. Everyone who follows Jesus should expect to be challenged and tested, and we should not be surprised by this. And then there's one more scene that's tied to this amazing passage here in in this particular uh, final part of Matthew chapter 8. Jesus offers glimpses of his authority over evil. Verse 28 says, when he arrived at the, at the other side in the region of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? There are two key elements in this event. First, we encounter two demon-possessed men. These are presented not as men who are out of their minds or who have a mental condition or something very extreme like that, but rather they are demon-possessed. So the conversation that Jesus has is not with the men, but with the demons that are speaking to him. The second factor has to do with a herd of pigs. And then there are two primary focal points. The first has to do with, with the welfare and restoration of these two men. Everybody, everybody else is terrified by them. They won't even go down the road that, that they come down. But Jesus is concerned about them. One theologian, Michael Green, wrote this. He said, Much ink and compassion have been spilled upon the pigs by scholars who no doubt enjoy their bacon for breakfast and their pork for dinner. But the main point here is not about the pigs. It's about Jesus had compassion on these men and how Jesus wanted to lift them out of the difficulties of those moments and restore them to a full life. But then we also see Jesus' authority over evil. This is one of those moments when he gave his disciples a glimpse of his authority over evil. This makes him one to be feared and trusted at the same time. Feared because people like you and me, and in that time as well, have little experience with the subject of evil, and we tend to avoid it wherever possible. Yet the evil one has been a part of God's story since the Garden of Eden and the temptation that subdued Adam and Eve. These evil spirits asked Jesus if he has come to torture them before the appointed time. In other words, they knew something about Jesus, that Jesus had come into this world to defeat the power of evil once and for all. And they trembled in his sight. As Green notes, God's ultimate authority over Satan is vested in Jesus. And Jesus wanted his disciples in that moment to see a glimpse of his authority over evil. Jesus allows his true followers to see just enough to trust that he is able to conquer all the powers of evil in the end. Rather than being an incidental or embarrassing diversion from the story, Jesus' authority over evil is essential for us to trust him as the conqueror sent by God. The decisive blow was was struck when he defeated death through the resurrection. But what we still await is the unfolding of of the final victory of God over sin and death and all the powers of evil in this world when he sets all things right. And Jesus was giving his disciples a glimpse of just how authoritative he really is. Everyone who follows Jesus should expect to be challenged and tested. And when we hold on to him, we get a clearer picture of who Jesus really is. So here's more of the good news that we are discovering through this series. 
The gospel is so good that there is nothing about your life that can shock or scare away Jesus, not even these two men that approached him from out of the tombs that day. The gospel is advancing as people desperate for grace take hold of Jesus' offer. The gospel is so good that Jesus is willing to be misunderstood by standing with you as we saw last Sunday. And the gospel is so good that it's worth counting the cost and giving your life for it and knowing that the one that you trust is authoritative over every possible, every imaginable evil that you could ever encounter. That's how powerful Jesus is. Let's pray. God, we thank you that there is nothing in this world that you cannot conquer. And there's no one in this world that you will not love. Thank you for merging these two streams of thought together in Jesus. That Jesus came motivated by love, but he came in such bold authority and power that he'd come once and for all to break the power of sin and death. He broke the power of sin and death at the cross and the resurrection. And one day, evil too will be subdued. We will pray for that reign of Jesus when the world will be set right and when everyone will recognize who he is and the peace of God will rule throughout all times. For now, let it rule in us. Let it rule in every heart. Hear the person who may be saying, Jesus, I hadn't really encountered you in the fullness like I'm finding now. So help me receive you as the Lord that I fear and trust all at the same time. Because you are powerful. There is nothing that is beyond your control. And yet you are tender and you welcome us into the fold. You welcome us into the family. You welcome us forever. And so I will trust you. And Lord, we pray that whatever challenges that we are facing in life, that your power will be unleashed to defeat every foe, every difficulty, every obstacle that we face, that we may face them with faith rather than fear and with trust rather than terror. In Jesus' mighty name.